Welcome to our winter focus on Wednesday nights, and we are going to be studying the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Really excited about that. So you can turn to First Thessalonians if you'd like. And um, after the Bible study, we are going to be breaking up into circle groups to have a little discussion about the Bible study. Now, if you don't want to do that, that's fine. You can go ahead and just head out after the Bible study. Uh, but we would really encourage you all to you know, get in a, a circle group. And if you didn't register to be in a group, um, every group, that, every one of these circles should have a chair or two open and available that you can just jump into a group um, and be a part of that group. For all of you who did register, uh, the numbers of your group are they're on the chairs there. And for all of you who are watching and joining us online, when the study's over, I want to encourage you to not leave because we're going to do something we've never done, and that is we're going to have a discussion for those of you online that you can watch. It'll be myself, Pastor Aaron, Pastor Eddie. We're going to do it in our studio, and you can actually send in your comments, questions um, as well. So we're wanting to include all of you who are online in that, but excited to jump into chapter one. I have the privilege of teaching this section. Tyler and Aaron are going to be helping uh, teach through these two books with me. So um, follow along as I read, beginning here in verse one of chapter one. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church at Thessalonica, or the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patient hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in the, the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for these two letters that Paul wrote to these believers in the city of Thessalonica thousands of years ago. And yet they are very relevant to us today. And so, God, we ask that you would speak to us tonight by your Holy Spirit 
that you would teach us, and that our time of discussion in the groups would be like iron sharpening iron, that we would sharpen the countenance of our friends. So we give you tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let me give you a little bit of background in this uh, book and in this uh, city, Thessalonica. Thessalonica was an ancient city. It was originally named Therma for the many hot springs that were adjacent to it. But in 313 BC, it was renamed Thessalonica after the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Now, during Paul's day, Thessalonica was a growing city. It had a population of over 200,000 people that was basically mostly combined of Romans, Greeks, and Jewish people. But 200,000 people in a city in that day and age, I mean, that was really, really huge. And it also was the temporary home of thousands of sailors and travelers and immigrants who um, visited the city because uh, it was on a, a busy highway that went along the city. And so it had a vibrant economy. It had a strategic harbor and a prime location on the Roman Empire's, what they called the Ignatian Road. And all of that made Thessalonica one of the most influential cities in the first century. You could maybe equate it to being like the LA, the New York, or even the London of its day. But despite all that, Thessalonica was a lost city. The Greeks filled their temples, the the Jews attended their synagogues, and the, the Romans were paying worship to Caesar. But a pervasive darkness really covered the city. Now, Paul came to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. You can read about that on your own in Acts chapter 17. And Paul only preached there three weeks. Three weeks was the the only time he spent there. His time there was cut short by a mob that forced him to flee into Berea. But even though Paul's ministry in Thessalonica wasn't a long one, God did something there. Because there was a church that was birthed. There was a group of people that came to put their faith in Jesus, and this church was born. And when Paul left, he eventually has Timothy go, and for a while, Timothy, his protege, pastored this group of people. Now, the Thessalonians were, it was considered, 1 Thessalonians was considered to be the first epistle that Paul ever wrote, his earliest writing. And this was a young church that he really cared for deeply. And I had a privilege this past uh, fall in September to go and preach at the church I planted up in Oregon 26 years ago. And it was emotional to go and, and be there and see some of the people that were there in the very beginning and to see what, what God, you know, had done. And so I, I can relate to, you know, how Paul felt like this was, you know, this, his first epistle and this was a, a group of people that was very early in his ministry and, and uh, just a special place in his heart. And so First and Second Thessalonians are also known as prophetic letters, or they're letters that Paul wrote that definitely have a prophetic aspect to them. And let's talk for a minute about Paul's writings. Paul wrote some letters that had as a focus salvation. 
You know, soteriology is the study of the doctrines of salvation. The books that like Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians all deal with that subject. But then Paul wrote some letters that were, you know, really to the church and dealt with ministry. And, and, and that, that is called ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. And so Paul's pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus, they, they, they are letters where the focus is on ecclesiology. But then Paul wrote some letters that had a focus of eschatology. And, and that is First and Second Thessalonians. He talks a lot in these letters about the coming of Christ. In fact, this is pretty remarkable to consider that every chapter of 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the rapture or the second coming of Christ. Let me give you some examples. Here in chapter 1, verse 10, we see that he says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he received from, or raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In chapter 2, if you want to turn over there, it'll be on the screen, verse 19. He says, but what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? In chapter 3, verse 13, it says that we may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. And then in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, he says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, talking here about the rapture, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then in chapter 5, in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved, blameless, here it is again, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul mentions the coming of the Lord in every single chapter. And that's very interesting to me because this was a young church. I mean, they're only three weeks. He'd only been with them for three weeks. There's a bunch of young believers, and yet he's talking to them about these things. And I find that interesting because there are those today in the church that, that like to say, you know, the study of Bible prophecy really isn't that important. And you definitely shouldn't talk to young Christians about it because it's just too confusing for them. Paul didn't feel that way. And neither did the Holy Spirit who inspired these writings. In fact, if you, do, I don't know if you realize this, but the second coming of Christ is actually the broadest subject in the entire New Testament. One in 25 verses of the New Testament deals with the second coming of Christ. So it was important to God, it was important to Paul, and God, I think, wants us to be, wants it to be important to us. Now, we've entitled this um, study that we're doing in First and Second Thessalonians, um, Confident Living in Challenging or Uncertain Times. I think we could have entitled this series, Living for Today While Longing for Tomorrow. Because really, that's what, what, what we're doing, isn't it? We're living for today, but we're longing for tomorrow. We're, we're longing for the Lord to come. And Paul's going to give us some insight into how we are to do that 
in the, the, the chapters that we're going to be looking at in these two books. But let's start with his greeting. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins here by mentioning his traveling companions, Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus is also known as Silas. Um, he was a long um, and experienced companion of Paul. And Silas and Timothy traveled with Paul on his second missionary journey, and they were with him when when he came to Thessalonica. And Paul would later, as I mentioned, send Timothy back to pastor this group of people. Notice also that Paul gives to the church here a double address. Um, One is geographical and the other one is spiritual. Um, He mentions that they lived in Thessalonica, but they were found to be in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? Of those two addresses, the second one is the most important. You know, all of you live somewhere in North County. We have people in our church that come from here in Vista, Oceanside, San Marcos, Escondido, Fallbrook, Bonzel, Carlsbad. And that's your physical address, but your spiritual place where God has put you is that you are in Christ. If you've given your heart to Jesus, that's how God sees you. He sees you. You've been placed in his son, and that is the most important thing about where you have been placed. Paul then says to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace have been called the Siamese twins of the New Testament. It's been said that grace is the fountain and peace is what flows from it. It's also been said that grace is who God is and peace is the result of knowing him. You see, man cannot really experience true peace until he receives God's grace. That's why these two are connected. And it's interesting, they're never ever mentioned in the Bible as peace and grace. It's always grace and peace. It's always in that order. Because it's only when we understand that our salvation is through what Jesus did for us, through his grace, that we can experience the peace of God. Notice how Paul continues there in the second part of verse 2. He says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, that they were called, that they were chosen by God is what that means. But Paul here is wanting to encourage these believers. And he's wanting to encourage them about their status in the Lord, that they have been chosen by him and are beloved by him. And the evidence of their conversion is really seen in these three things that Paul mentions here, their faith, their love, and their hope. And these three things are really The three byproducts of a true conversion, faith, hope, and love. You see, faith looks back 
at our crucified Savior and all that he has done for us, love looks up to our crown Savior that we see him as our our king and our hearts have fallen in love with him and hope looks on to our coming Savior. I love that. Faith looks back to the crucified Savior. Love looks up to the crown Savior and hope looks on to the coming Savior. So these three characteristics really constitute the outline here of chapter 1 that we see Paul talk about their work of faith in verses 5 through 7 as well as in verse 9, their labor of love in verse 8, and then their patient hope in verse 10. And so that's how we're going to break down the rest of this chapter. Let's start off with their work of faith. Notice he says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia believe. What is this work of faith that Paul is talking about? Is Paul confused about salvation? You know, when he, when he talks about the the work of faith, what's he, no, Paul's not confused. Paul's the one who wrote in Ephesians that we have been saved by grace. Ephesians two verses eight and nine. We have been saved by grace through faith and it's not of works lest anyone should boast. So Paul was totally clear on his soteriology. He was totally clear on, you know, how we are saved. But what Paul is doing here when he mentions their work of faith is he's really echoing what the apostle James wrote about when he wrote in his epistle that, yes, we are saved by, by grace through faith and that not of works. But then James would go on to say, but our faith is a faith that works. In other words, our faith is going to be evidenced by our works. In fact, James would put it this way, that faith without works is dead. And that's what Paul is talking about here. When he mentions their work of faith, he's talking about the evidence of their faith, that their faith was seen in their works. And so let's consider how this work of faith was evidenced. First of all, it was evidenced in that they responded to the preaching of the gospel. You know, Paul mentions in verse 5 how that when they came to the, the city of Thessalonica, they came preaching the gospel, and that the gospel went forth in power and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the result we see in verse 6, he says, they received the word. They received it. The gospel went forth, and they received it. Paul said this in Romans ten seventeen that that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus would say this in John chapter 6, verse 28. They, they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? How do we do this? They're asking. This is what Jesus answered. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. 
So these guys, they hear the gospel and they received it. They responded to it. And that's how they were saved. And this is in the context. Their faith was evidenced by their response. So they responded to the gospel. And notice it says, and they did it in much affliction. Which I think is something really interesting to to point out. They did it, in other words, counting the cost. Knowing that to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus in that uh, Roman oppression of that culture was something that was dangerous, and they they counted the cost. The second thing we see is that they th- there was repentance. We see this in verse nine, where it says that they turned to God from their idols. And that's always a key. When we're turning from sin or turning from idols that we're just not we're not just turning from that, but we're turning to someone and that someone is God. So they turn to God um, from their idols. It says there in uh, in verse 9. Now an idol, what's an idol? An idol is anything that takes the place of God in our lives. An idol is anything that consumes our hearts and minds and attention more than God. Those are things that are idols. I like what Timothy Keller said about idols. He says, an idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy and your emotion and your financial resources on it without a second thought. That's when you know you have an an idol, is when you are just giving all of your passion and all of your thinking and even a lot of your resources to something. That's probably a good indication of something that's an idol in your life. Now, in Bible times, people worship Baal because they believe that Baal was supposed to bring them financial success and prosperity, in Paul's day and age, they, they worshipped Aphrodite, the goddess of sexual pleasure. Now, in our culture, most people, I'm sure there's some out there, but most people, probably none of your neighbors, none of the people that you work with, are going around and bowing down to statues. They're not worshipping Baal, but how many people are worshipping success? And prosperity. That that's the thing that consumes them, that they're 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 focused on. And and people today are not going and frequenting the temple of the goddess Aphrodite like they did in Paul's day, but how many people are visiting porn sites and strip clubs and all of that type of garbage? We definitely live in a culture that has a lust problem, don't we? Our culture is full of idolaters. If we really think about it, it's just a different kind of idolatry. And the lesson that we need to see tonight and really apply to our lives is this, that if we want to see something wonderful born in our hearts, like was happening in Thessalonica, then we need to turn from our idols. That we need to turn from that which has our attention and our hearts instead of the Lord. And the reason that we do this is so critical because of what the psalmist had to say about idols. In Psalm 115, let let me read it to you. I think it'll be on the screen. He said this, But our God is in heaven. 
And he does whatever he pleases. Our God is sovereign, in other words. The God above all gods. Their idols are silver and gold and the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak, and eyes, but they, 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 they have, but they do not see. They, they have ears, but they do not hear, and noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle, and feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. And then it says this, those who make them are like them. And so is everyone who trusts in them. The psalmist says, our God's in heaven. Our God is the one who is able to save. But anything else that we put in his place, it can't speak. It can't see. It can't hear. It can't save. And the worst part is whatever it is that that people, they put themselves to worship, they become like that. And this is a sobering warning for us. Because let's think about this. Our world today is greedy. How many of you want to be like that? I don't. The world today is unsatisfied in its pursuits. Do I really want to be like that? But our Lord, He is faithful. And He is good. And He is praiseworthy. That's what I want born into my life. I want to be like him. So we see in our text the evidence of their work of faith, that they responded to the gospel, they turned from their idols. Next, let's consider their labor of love. Now, when you think about labor and love, oftentimes those are two things that really don't go together unless you kind of really like love your job. I know some people who really love their job. I actually love my job, but uh, you know, not a lot of people today love their jobs, but we kind of think of those two of labor and love. They don't, they don't mix. But if you really think about it, they, they actually really do. Because when you really love someone, you will do anything for them. And what you do for them is really born out of a labor of love. I think about my grandson, Josiah. When my grandson Josiah, I mean, I love that kid so much. He's five, and, and when he asks me to help him with something or to do something, I usually, now I'll say usually because I don't always, but I'll usually respond with like, yes, let's do it. There's a sense of like, yeah, I, I want to help you because I love him so much. Or think about a mom in labor. I mean, that's labor, and love, right? I mean, she's laboring, it's painful, but there's a love there because she can't wait to, for that baby to come out that she has been talking to for nine months. There's a labor and there's a love there that go hand in hand. Paul would say that it was about his ministry, that it was the love of Jesus Christ that compelled him, that it moved him, that it motivated him. And what's interesting, though, about that, that saying is when Paul says that, he's not so much talking about his love for Jesus, but it's his understanding of Jesus' love for him. Because Paul came to understand, the more that I understand how much he loves me, the more I want to just be fully surrendered to him and do whatever he wants me to do. I think that's why Paul would pray for the Ephesians, that they would know, and, and how, how do you call it? That they would know the, the surpassing greatness of the love of God. That they would come to know how much he really, really 
love them. So Paul mentions their labor of love and defines it in this way in verse 8. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. This is such an amazing picture. These guys were so in love with Jesus that they just had to talk about him to everyone that they could. That their faith, their trust, their love for Jesus just went out. And and the idea when he says it sounded forth, the idea is that it went forth like a trumpet blast. Like just a trumpet going forth. And and it's just such an amazing picture. Especially at a time in culture when it was safer to be quiet. When it was safer to avoid danger and persecution, these Christians, they just were trumpeting forth their love and their faith in Jesus. And listen to how the city fathers there in Thessalonica described what was happening. We read this in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. It says that these are those who turned the world upside down. That's how radical it was. They were trumpeting forth. And they're like, these are the ones. They're affecting the entire world. They're turning their world upside down. How did they do it? Think about this. Did they do it through huge crusades? Did they do it through mailing campaigns? Did they do it through citywide outreaches and meetings? No, they did it by simply just meeting with their friends and their neighbors and telling everyone that they could who Jesus was and what he had done in their lives. Now, I want you to think about this. What instrument depicts your faith, my faith, our faith in Jesus? Is it a trumpet? Is it like a so out there that it's just boisterous? Or is it more like a kazoo, you know? You know, kazoo, that nasally little kind of annoying thing. Or is it so obnoxious that it's more like a clanging cymbal? You know, Paul talks about that. Their faith went forth like a, 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 it sounded forth like a, like a trumpet. May ours as well. So their lives were marked by a work of faith, a labor of love. And then finally, number three, a patient hope. Look at verse nine. For they themselves declare concerning us of what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. And then verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This church seemed to have an understanding of something I think we often forget, and that's this, that there is a time clock on planet Earth. They believed, you see, what the the angels had, had said concerning Jesus When the apostles saw him ascending, they said this in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. The same Jesus whom you see going into heaven shall also come in like manner. And they believed that he was coming again. And their hope was in that. Their hope was in the return of Jesus. Again, there are today those in the church who like to put down the study of eschatology. 
There are those in, in the church, I'm not saying like, I'm not in the church at large who, you know, oh, you guys that like to do those prophecy updates, I just, I don't get that. And, and this is one of the accusations they'll, they'll say is though you guys that are so into prophecy, what that does is it produces a mentality of escapism in believers. And they're not really being active for the kingdom of God. I completely disagree with that. You know why? When Paul's here talking about waiting, the word he uses is really, it describes an active waiting. And you know who is the most active person or active people, I'll put it this way, I've ever seen in my life? The most active people I have ever seen in my life is a bride who is approaching her wedding day. They're busy. They've got this massive to-do list. There's so many things to be done. They're frantically running around and serving. Why? Because she wants to be ready for her big day. She wants everything to be perfect. You know what the Bible says about us? It says that we're the bride of Christ that we're the bride of Jesus and we are waiting for our wedding ceremony with the Lord, that we're gonna be united with him when he comes for us. And, I, and we need to be in that same kind of manner as a bride here, like we're getting ready and we want everybody to be ready and we want everybody, all our friends to be a part of that wedding reception. And it's interesting when Paul used the phrase and to wait for his son from heaven, he uses a word here that was equated with a pregnant woman waiting for her baby to come. Is that a picture of laziness? You, you ladies who had babies, what does what a lady do when she gets pregnant? She knows she's going to have a baby. I mean, she's getting the baby room ready. She's putting together cribs or, you know, the dad's helping her. They're painting. They're picking out colors. They're buying all these things. They're, they're, it's not late. It's active. They're getting ready. And then when she gets to that time when she knows, like, okay, you know, my due date is just around the corner. What, what is she doing? She's vacuuming. She's walking up and down stairs. You know, she's going for long walks. Why? Because she's doing anything she can to get that baby to come out. It's not a picture of laziness it's a picture of activity active waiting well that's what the paint the picture that paul's painting here that we would be active being busy about the kingdom which is exactly what jesus described in matthew chapter 25 i I won't go into it but he tells some parables there one is about 10 virgins five who were ready five who were taken off guard The other was about the parable of the talents, three servants that were given responsibility and and given some resources by their master who, you know, goes away on a trip and then he's like, do business until I come back. And two of them were faithful in what the Lord had given to them. And he multiplied, rewarded them with more responsibility. But the other guy, he just buried his in the ground. And it says in that story that whatever, even what he had was taken away from him. Listen, church, 
We'll close with this. Jesus is coming. He is. And he wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be actively waiting and doing business until he comes. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word to us tonight. And now as we spend the rest of the evening in our circle groups, we pray, God, that you would um, just bless this time of conversation. I pray that our hearts would be stirred, as the, the writer of Hebrews said, that we would stir up one another to love and good works. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.